0: So, today I'm joined by Dr. Alicia Rohrig, who is an associate professor of educational psychology at Florida State University, where she is graduate program coordinator for the educational psychology program. She is also director of PURPOSE, Partners United for Research Pathways Oriented to Social Justice in Education, which is an Institute of Education Sciences research training grant for underrepresented college students. She is also co director of research for the local freedom schools and chair of the Faculty Senate Library Committee. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you you wrote a wonderful article with Devin Soper, Bradley Cox, and Gloria Colvin, an educational researcher, entitled Changing the Default to Support Open Access to Education Research. I'm really grateful you're talking to me today about your article and the Open Access Education Research Movement. Um, I think to get started, can you explain what the Open Access Education Research Movement is and what the movement seeks?
1: Yeah, so we've all probably heard about... Uh, open access, what does that mean? People have different ideas about it. Um, There's lots of different types of open access and I think that's why it can be confusing. So the idea here though, the overarching idea is that we want our research to be accessible to people so they can use it. Uh, A lot of times we do research and it might just sort of stay in the ivory tower, right? Other researchers are looking it up and citing it in their research. But if we want our research to have impact, On policy and on practice, those who aren't affiliated with the university are going to have a really hard time getting a hold of the actual articles. And so the idea is to make it freely available on the Internet for those who want to use it.
0: So there are are many benefits to open access publishing, and it's important to get our work out into the public so they can access it. I know there's also different kinds of open access publishing, so can you talk to us about the various kinds?
1: Yeah. So the most common two kinds are what we refer to as gold open access and green open access. Gold is the one where the researcher has to actually pay the publisher sometimes a hundred, a couple hundred dollars, all the way up to a couple thousand dollars to make their article open to the public. And sometimes you can get a grant from your library or you can use your research grant to help pay for those fees. But sometimes it's coming out of your own pocket. Um, The other kind is the green open access, which is free to the researcher. You can use things like ResearchGate or if your university has its own repository, you can archive your articles there. So that's green open access. And there's only certain versions of your article depending on the type of agreement you have with the publisher that you can put in that repository. And there also sometimes maybe a one or two year embargo that prevents you from putting it up immediately. The other kinds people probably know even less about include Diamond Open Access, in which it's totally free. The publisher doesn't charge you and nobody has to pay anything to get a subscription. And then there's hybrid. So there's some journals out there where People can publish in there and then other people will pay to get a subscription and see the article. But there's also the option you can pay them some money to make your article open access.
0: So I think it's really interesting that all these different mechanisms are evolving and different institutions are kind of creating their own repositories. Then there's some repositories online. I I guess I'm, I'm wondering, are there some... Categorizations of open access or types of open access that are better for scholars and better for the public? Are there kind of better options that people should be considering?
1: That's a good question. I think that the green open access is something that I would advocate for and have advocated for at my own university because it is free and doesn't give more money to the publishers who are making so much money off our own work. And so with the green OA, you will just basically take care of putting your own work, the versions that are allowable to put up there. So like maybe it's your Word document before it received reviews and you edited it, or maybe it's your final version after edits, um, but not formatted by the journal. And so you can post those up there yourself and you can, you know, put links in your Vita to them and that sort of thing so that people can find them. And we're not giving more money to the publishers.
0: Right yeah so i i've seen that and i do think that's an important distinction so just so that everyone's clear there's there's the final word or google doc or whatever that you kind of submit to the publisher when they've accepted it and then what they do is they kind of put it in their fancy formatting you can publish to these open archives, the Word doc or Google doc, but you can't publish the paginated one, at least most publishers won't allow you to do that. And that's the key distinction. And what you're suggesting is it sounds like that's kind of the best of both worlds because there exists this publisher paginated version that has all the typical um, qualities of published work, but there's also a nearly exact free version available for people who need it.
1: Yep. But the main drawback is, depending on the publisher, there may be this embargo. It's usually about one year um, before you're allowed to put in there. Um, With our repository at FSU, what happens is we can submit it right away and they'll hold it till the end of the embargo and then release it. But another option that you can do is you can try to add things to that contract that you get when your article is accepted that tries to waive or shorten that embargo or you know, retains your rights to the material in your paper more so than they you would normally get right when you just sign off and get your article published.
0: I thought that was a really important part of your article because I, I have to admit, it never really crossed my mind to negotiate with a publisher once they've accepted my article. But uh, it's like anything else, right? You could say, this is the contract you've given to me. I'd like to make these changes. Um, and it sounds like you're saying that there are times where your institution's library or um, legal team will actually help you with that negotiation process.
1: Yes, they might even have templates for things that you could ask to have added into the contract, and can work with you on that. So the main issue with that is that people who are not tenured yet often are worried about doing that because you know being you know newer to the field, they're worried that somebody's gonna think badly of them because they're, they're arguing with the editor about these things or that it, they're gonna say to them eventually no and then withdraw you know that article acceptance. And so I think it can be kind of a scary thing to do for assistant professors. But you know, even if you have in tenure and you're not worried about that, it can be kind of a long drawn out process. My own personal experience was that the, the editors who are usually other faculty members don't have any idea. Um, what you're even asking, and then you have to go to try to find certain people at the actual publishing you know houses to work with as opposed to the editor because the editor themselves doesn't really know how to deal with it
0: so that that's a really interesting point. So I guess it depends upon the publisher, but I know that fear of the publisher or the editor saying, well, you know what, you're being difficult. We're not going to publish your article anymore. That's a very real fear. And I understand that there's, for many people, there's real severe consequences with that. But it, it kind of sounds like for most editors, they're kind of out of the loop once you start negotiating with the publishers about the terms. Yep.
1: Yep. They are totally out of the loop. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I guess I wonder... Do you know of any publishers that have any policies about kind of putting a firewall between the acceptance decision and the terms of the publication? I mean, it would seem to me that faculty and researchers would feel more comfortable negotiating if they knew that their paper was accepted and it would be published regardless of the negotiation process.
1: I do not know of that. And I don't know if that is something anybody does, but I think it's a really good idea. Um, it makes a lot of sense, right, in terms of protecting sort of the integrity of, you know, the blind review process.
0: Yeah, I could imagine something where the the deal would be something like, listen, we promised to publish your article under the terms of this agreement, but we're open to negotiating. And if we can reach a mutual agreement, that's fine. But if we don't reach a mutually agreeable Uh, set of terms, we can default back to the original agreement. At that point, then the author can decide whether or not they want to agree. Right.
1: And that's usually, I think, what happens is that, you know, you sort of, you either get what you want from the publisher, or you settle on something else, or the original terms. But if more people fight, right, then I think that they start to get, the publishers start to get the picture that this is something they need to change. And the same thing with the open access policies at universities, which help to maintain some of the rights of the authors, the, the publishers are starting to, to hear the importance of this to us
0: and And that's another really nice part of your article where you you talk about kind of the moral imperative um, to try to get work to be more accessible, and you talk about the need for multiple constituencies in the research and publication process to take a more forward advocacy type position. So you identify um, you know researchers themselves, research institutions, funders, editors. Uh, I, I guess you know one question that might be going through people's mind is, you know, for a scholar, for example, what are the benefits of open access publishing? why Why should they see it as not just a moral responsibility but also something that might be helpful for them?
1: Yeah. so besides like you said, besides the fact that you want your work to have perhaps a real, practice or policy impact, you know, we are often still judged to a high degree for tenure and promotion decisions on the impact, right, that's related to how many times your work is cited. And there's been um, research done showing that your work will get more visibility and more citations when it is freely accessible.
0: You know, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it just kind of reminds me of this shift in the field that I've seen in the last 10 years or so. And I, I've spoken to colleagues who have been working longer than I have, and, and they've noted it as well, that nowadays it seems like scholars are being more proactive about publicizing their work, not in a bad way, not in a self-serving way, but in a, hey, I want to get this out there, whereas I think maybe people who were publishing 15, 20, 30 years ago kind of had this attitude of like, well, the the work should speak for itself. Um, but it does seem like nowadays, particularly with the proliferation of information, it's incumbent upon researchers to try to find as many ways as possible to publicize their work um, so that it gets heard, so it gets seen, so it gets used.
1: Yeah, um, that whole idea of being a public scholar, I think, is is sort of one way that that's getting a lot more play. I, I mean, ultimately, sort of thinking ideally, I would like to see us, you know, as we become more senior faculty within our own institutions, that we change some of the expectations for tenure and promotion to be thinking about how we have an impact, you know, with our work outside of these sort of traditional citation counts, thinking about how they how we actually impact policy and practice, how we provide information and access to our work in ways that more people can reach it and have that sort of count as important work that we do.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's just interesting. My anecdotal experience has been that um, at my institution, public scholarship is something that's gotten some attention and the university has tried to include it in promotion and tenure decisions. I think it's interesting to be in a school of education or a college of education, Um, versus other units in the um, institution, because so much of our work is public scholarship. I mean, we're in classrooms or in public settings doing our work. Um, I think it's a little different than, say, a physicist who's doing important work and good work, but may not be public. And so I, I think it's an interesting situation where public scholarship for people who are doing education research may be more common, but also um, maybe more difficult to articulate and differentiate than people who, you know, I'm I'm a historian and I gave a public speech. That's very clearly public scholarship, and it's not something they typically do in the course of their scholarly work
1: right and what's also kind of interesting is that education is kind of on the the trailing end of this of this movement because it's in in some of the sciences like chemistry and physics i mean they have these databases that they've been using for years where they publish their or, or archive their work freely so that people in the community can access it so while it might be maybe perhaps more of an academic audience, they're still sort of providing that that free access to it. And now we're just, you know, in education, I think, finally coming to the table with this.
0: That that was another really interesting part of your article that education's actually lagging behind so many other um, fields when it comes to open access, which initially feels a little counterintuitive to me, but I kind of understand and I, how we got here. And I think you do a good job of explaining that in the article. Uh, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, Uh, As different institutions begin creating repositories and begin creating ways for researchers to promote and publish their work online in an open access manner, how do we ensure that we don't have like a million different public archives? You know, like if I want to go looking for work and I search for a particular term and I'm looking for something that's open access and I get 60 institutions, repositories, that might be difficult for me to navigate. Is there any work being done to try to bring these things together?
1: Well, I'm not an expert on databases, but I would say that the folks who are, who are at the universities working on making these repositories, I think they're pretty good at making sure that they're linked in to search engines. So if you say Googled something right, you're when you when you Google something, you notice on the right hand side, you'll see these links, hot links that show you where the articles are. Oftentimes those are in free repositories. So, you know, especially like if you're at home and you're not on your university's network, you can click on those and you'll see which ones actually bring you to the article versus which ones pit you to a paywall. Whereas, you know, a lot of people, if they're doing their research on campus while well, they're connected into the library and the, you know, the web on campus, it automatically takes you to, it. it seems like for free. This is something, a misconception that we've seen in a lot of faculty here is you think it's free because you're clicking on it and you get it. But that's because we already paid a gazillion dollars right from our budgets in the libraries to to have access to that. But if you went home and clicked on it, it would say $35.
0: Yeah, and that's, that has happened to me, and um, it does kind of give me a window into what it's like if you're not affiliated with an institution. And there may be lots of reasons why people are wanting to do scholarship who don't happen to be affiliated with an institution that isn't paying those, those large fees. Um, and this dovetails nicely with a, a discussion amongst education funders, right? So a lot of education funders are now requiring work from grants to be published in open access venues, right?
1: Yes. And so one of the main ones is the Institute for Education Sciences. They are asking all their grantees to make their work public access in ERIC, right? We're all pretty much familiar with with ERIC, which we have a lot of conference things in there and other things archived in there. But now that is going to be, so you're talking about not having too many places where things live. People are to upload their versions to ERIC. And so they still will have that problem of if there's an embargo. And so you just need to submit it to ERIC and they'll hold it until that embargo is lifted and then it'll be accessible. I just got an email from IES saying that we've got 1,200 peer-reviewed scholarly publications uh, that have been you know, funded by IES that should be available freely in ERIC, but only 35% of those publications have been uploaded. <laughs> so even though we have these policies, these policies are just starting to roll out and there's not a huge amount of maybe teeth to to make them happen i think maybe as the next couple of years happen and people don't put them in there could be ramifications for getting another grant that kind of thing but it's still slow going even with those kinds of policies and same thing like with institutional policies like at, um at fsu our policy like many others in the United States, is, you know, there's no penalty to faculty who don't follow the policy. It's a recommendation, and it's one that's been very well supported by librarians and budget considerations that have allowed us to have people help us find our articles, get our articles up there, make sure it's the right version, that kind of thing. And even though we got a lot more people submitting stuff there, it's not all going in there.
0: Yeah, and and that certainly would change the conversation if funders or institutions started imposing some kind of penalty for not making material open access. I think certainly that would change the tenor of the conversation. I guess, you know, let me me speak as devil's advocate for a second. Um, So it seems to me that there is some value added to administering a good peer review process, you know, helping people develop editorial boards, um, hosting, PDFs on servers I mean all of that does take some funds right it does cost something um, in an open access world, who should be paying for those costs like ideally how do we set it up so that work can get done and the material can still be available in the ways that we want it to be available
1: Well let's see so we as faculty members we do reviews for free. I think over the years I mean it depends on which organization it is but editors, get very little compensation. This is all work we do as service. And then we write these articles and we're basically giving away our work so that our universities can buy it back and so that we can pay for subscriptions or memberships to get it back. So I I think one of the main problems is, is that they're charging twice. And so it's perhaps not as expensive as that, right? If we're already doing the work for free, can we do it for free some other way? <laughs> um, I, I think that's the main thing, right? That, that they're getting us coming and going.
0: So, all right. So that that helps me better understand. So the the one of the concerns is there's kind of work being done for free um, and then we're getting charged for um, accessing that work back. And so you can imagine a, some kind of system where You're either doing one or the other, you know, either you're charging for the peer review process and that is there's some costs there that are um, accounted for by a publisher, but then the work is open access or vice versa. Right. So the um, there's some kind of compensation for um, the peer review process and that in turn gets paid for by publication fees.
1: Yeah. And so what some of the, um, the faculty that I know in some of the sciences uh, here at FSU, what they do is they will, as a reviewer, negotiate with the publishers and say, well, first of all, right, when you're a reviewer, you tend to get a free subscription to the journal, usually. But what they'll say is, I want to make sure definitely that I'm getting free access to this journal, but I also want free access for my graduate students and things like that. So they'll negotiate that work as a reviewer to get access.
0: So that's again something that I've never really thought about negotiating. Um, you know, I get those emails like "Thank you for reviewing this article. Here's three months of access," which I don't really need because my institution probably subscribes to that journal anyways.
1: Unless your your university is like mine, where we can't sustain the increases every year, and we've been having to cut.
0: Ah, uh, interesting. So, so there are there are two things there, right? So, for some people, that that three months of access could be really valuable for sure. Um, But it also sounds like, for some people, that might not be the right compensation. Um, And it is possible for you as a reviewer to negotiate different compensation, like access for your graduate students or some other kind of compensation.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It does sound like the open access movement is being very thoughtful about um, really questioning the process and questioning many aspects of the scholarly review and publication process and opening up some windows um, to maybe improve access and compensation for scholars and the public, and I think that's, that's a really valuable service. In the article, you also mentioned that there's some hesitancy or even some hesitancy or some concern from established scholars that uh, maybe they don't want to do this. What's your sense of some of the pushback from established scholars about open access and the kinds of things that the movement wants?
1: Yeah, well, sometimes they just get a little frustrated, like, well, okay, so I've got a grant, and I'm already required to put it in a repository, so I'm putting it in that repository. Why do I also have to put it in my university repository, right? Isn't that good enough? And so, you know, we took their point to heart, and the libraries are working to figure out how can they just link our portal to to the established one, like Eric or whatever, right, to pull that in. You know, they feel like, what is my reward for doing this, for spending the, you know, I always say it's just a few extra minutes, but for spending a few extra minutes for doing this, what am I going to get out of it? Or it's like you had said earlier, that's not really my job, right? My job is to do the research. It's not really that big a deal. People want access, they're going to find a way to get access. But I would say, you know, I think that with the public scholar kind of idea really sort of blooming, there's we're hearing a little bit less of that. And but then with the more junior scholars, I think there's that tension about that I talked about earlier where I don't want to be seen as sort of like this difficult person in the eyes of senior people that you might be asking for letters for your packet to go up within a couple of years, or that you know, I don't know what I get what benefit there is to my tenure package for. Putting that that work out there, just to show how it can be different in Europe. There's a number of places where the articles must be open access to count towards your tenure and promotion. So here in the U.S. we haven't done that, but you know that could be a potential next step. Like you have to make your work accessible for it to be in here. And I think where some people get nervous is they start to think, well does that mean I'm just self-publishing or I'm just putting things on the web? And I think it's always important to remind people that open access is not about removing the peer review process. It is about taking that final result and one way or the other making it accessible to people so that we can maintain the quality but we just have more access to that quality material.
0: That's a critical point. I'm glad that you said that because um, I think we've all gotten those kind of predatory emails, you know, we'll publish your stuff right away and it's available to everyone. And, And what you've highlighted is there's a critical difference between a low quality predatory journal and a really solid, rigorous peer review process that when it's all said and done, then leads to something that's open access. And that's what you're advocating for.
1: Right. So that is one of the issues with education is that until very recently, we had very few sort of top tier journals that were open access. And there's still so many of those predatory type journals out there that send us these unsolicited emails and ask us to submit and then pay $500 and get our article accepted. But, you know, with AERA Open and other journals that are out there with bigger names, you know, with professional organizations behind them, we we are starting to have people see that these things can be quality.
0: And, and I think your point about senior scholars and institutions uh, recognizing and privileging open access is really important, right? It's, it's difficult to ask someone who's pre-tenure or someone who um, would otherwise depends upon senior scholars for various kinds of promotion or success in the field to somehow do something, just take a step out and say, I'm going to do something different here. Um, It feels like it's really incumbent upon senior scholars, editors, institutions, funders to be the ones saying, this is important. We need to figure out a way to do this and help our junior scholars feel like this is a safe and appropriate thing to do.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I couldn't agree more.
0: I guess I wonder this seems to me be the explicit purpose of national organizations or international organizations, right? I mean, so education scholars have a number of different organizations that they um, choose to become a member of. And it seems like those organizations could be a place where everyone could come together and talk about these issues and make good decisions that would push the field forward in positive ways and also provide guidance for more junior scholars in terms of how to do this in in a safe and beneficial manner.
1: Definitely. I mean, with professional organizations they too, they have, you know, all these people behind them and money behind them, right? That if they're publishing journals with specific companies, they have a lot right behind them, not just like one faculty member, right? You've got thousands of faculty members behind you saying, okay, let's negotiate this contract or how this works or which publisher we're going to go with. And, you know, what's going to be part of that package if we, if we go with this company versus that company, that kind of thing. So I think that's a, a way for us to sort of have more of a voice.
0: Yeah. And it, it strikes me that there, there is room for negotiation, right? So that's something that we've talked about a couple different times. What I haven't heard is, and what I didn't read in your article was this argument that, well, publishers shouldn't exist. That's not the question. The question is, um, what's a fair and reasonable price to pay, for lack of a better term, for the services they provide? And how can we also ensure that when our work is published, it's available to everyone? What's what's the right negotiation there so that everyone's getting what they need, and at the end of the day, the work is available to all who want to see it?
1: Right. Because, I mean, that's the reason people go with some of these big name publishers is they have many wonderful, useful platforms for editors and reviewers to use, to assign reviewers, to find reviewers, to streamline the, the process, right, of doing all the hard work there is and putting, you know, issues of journals together. There is value in that. But the problem is, is that they, they have way higher than inflation. They, they raise the cost every year and have huge, huge profit margins that, you know, people are fighting back against, you know, the, um, the California university system canceled the Elsevier contract, uh, Florida state, we canceled our big deal, uh, Elsevier contract folks in Europe, they're doing that as well. Um, we're fighting back and saying, you know, you're charging way too much for these things.
0: Yeah. And that, that again is, is a way to try to, push for change. And I appreciate what you said there And that um, there are important services that publishers provide that I, I don't know every institution wants to develop its own manuscript submission review process or system. Um, and certainly there's all kinds of marketing and, and publication services that these organizations provide. It, it sounds like open access movement is about um, negotiating for a more equitable, fair, and open way of working with publishers um, to to ensure that everyone is is benefiting.
1: Right. And maintaining your rights to your intellectual property too.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. So if I'm a, a scholar at a research institution and I want to pursue open access ideas and, and see what I can do to make my work more open access, what resources would you recommend I access at my institution um, for help with that?
1: I would go to your libraries. They will definitely have um, at least one, maybe more, maybe a whole unit of librarians focused on digital scholarship uh, in some form or the other with somebody who knows about open access. So they will be able to help you with negotiating contracts, with thinking about what are your rights as an author? What are you giving up? They can help you figure out those really confusing contracts that you've already signed to see which version of your paper you can put up online. They are an invaluable tool.
0: Right. That's really helpful because I I'll just say for myself I don't think I realized the resources that are available um, at my institution and uh, it didn't again just didn't occur to me to go to the library to ask about these things but it makes perfect sense when you said it so I'm glad that you shared that with us
1: yeah and they're advocating for us in so many ways like here at FSU the libraries can work with you to create your own online free open access journal they have a system that helps you to do that and they also are you know working to negotiate and renegotiate contracts with publishers. So one new strategy that I've heard about recently is not always very successfully, but they're trying to get journals to package with it the ability for their faculty to publish open access without paying that fee, right? So sort of trying to bundle together subscriptions with those charges so that we aren't sort of getting charged on both ends.
0: Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Um I love the idea of having my own open access journal. thats Jeff's Journal of uh, super cool research. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the main problem there is you think about all the work you have to do to get each issue together, right? and you don't you you then have you might have more respect for the things that the the publishers actually can do for us with the marketing piece but but I do think it's a it's a tantalizing idea, one that we've batted around here ourselves
0: well. The article is wonderful. I encourage folks to read it. Again, it's called uh, Changing the Default to Support Open Access to Education Research. It's in the Journal of Educational Researcher. Um, and Alicia, I just want to thank you again for talking to us today. Open access is an important issue. I don't know that folks know as much about it as you do. So thanks for sharing all that you've learned and uh, all the opportunities that are available.
1: It's my pleasure. <laughs>